This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. So those of you who don't know, we started this Facebook group called Harvest Meals Together. How many of you know we need more face-to-face contact? Most of our contact is like this these days. We don't look up. We're staring at a screen, communicating with somebody who's sitting across the table from us. It's ridiculous. We want you guys to share a meal, to have some discussion, discuss God's word together, actually talk face-to-face. Have you know, our young people are losing the ability to talk face-to-face. Seriously. They don't know how to hold a normal conversation. We have got to talk face-to-face. And how many of you know there's such a strength in it? So anyway, what we did with this Harvest Meals together, every week we, we give you the opportunity to post one picture. A few of you guys did it again. You try to sneak in an extra. Yeah, we, we got you. You post one picture a week, and it counts in for a drawing. At the end of the month, everybody posted a picture. Every, each time you posted a picture during the month, you get your name in the drawing. We draw a name, and at the end of the month, uh, we do a drawing for a free gift card to a restaurant. Take your family out and have a nice meal together. So, so anyway, we're encouraging that. So you guys keep taking pictures, keep posting them. And, uh, man, we're just uh, going to keep enjoying some, uh, enjoying some pictures on Sunday morning. So, Last week we started the first 11 chapters of Genesis, right? And if you missed it, we're going to catch up. How many, any of you guys still have your timeline? I put, put it in the service guide last week. Why don't you go ahead and put that up on the screen? Uh, just to recap on last week, I told you each week, well, what they did in the heart of the story is they broke down the story of the Bible into five movements. What we see here on the screen is two, the first two movements. Now, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, that's pretty short, even though it covers a span of at least 2,000 years. It's a pretty short period in the Bible, pretty short section. So, um, so we're going to read this together, and this is what we covered last week. In the upper story, God creates a lower story. Remember we talked about this. God, the upper story is God's perspective. It's the way he sees things from the beginning of time to the end of time. He sees the beginning and the end and the middle. He sees it all together at the same time, and he has a plan, doesn't he? So the lower story is our perspective. It's the way we see things. It's our day-to-day life. It's us thinking about, oh, Lord Jesus, tomorrow's Monday, and i got to have that thing turned in at work. And, and you know, how's this going to go and that going to go? And our relationships and everything else, that's our lower story. So in the upper story, in Genesis, God creates, I'm sorry, in the upper story, God creates the lower story. His vision is to come down and to be with us in a beautiful garden. The first two people, what's their names? Adam and Eve, they reject God's vision, and they're escorted from paradise. Their decision introduces sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. At this moment, what moment? This moment, the moment they sinned. At this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter into a loving relationship with him. So from the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden, God desired to have relationship with humanity. How many of you guys know that relationship is very important to God? It's the main thing. But he wanted mankind to also choose him. So in order for him to allow mankind to do that, he had to give mankind something that he did not give the rest of, of creation. He gave mankind the freedom of choice. If man ate from the tree of life, He would live forever in the garden, communing with God. If man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did God say would happen? He said, you will surely die. Well, 
We know that man chose not to align with God's upper story, and he sinned against God, and Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And for the next 2,000 years, we talked about how mankind becomes more and more evil, and eventually they reach this point of no return. God says their thoughts are evil continuously. And so God actually gives mankind another chance by wiping out all but one righteous man and his family and saying, let's start over again. Let's start over from scratch. And in a very short amount of time, after Noah and his family come off the ark, very shortly in the very next chapter, we see again that sin has reared its ugly head. And it proves to us that sin was still a problem with the human race, right? But the good news is God still loved mankind desperately, even in the state of their rebellion. And his plan was still right on track. How many of you know God doesn't have a plan B? God has a plan A. Sometimes we have a plan B and a plan C, but God has a plan A. So from the Garden of Eden, God had a plan and a purpose to bring us back to him. And all the way back in the garden, the process for sacrificing for atonement of sin was instituted. It was implemented. And God promised a final sacrifice that would settle this matter forever. Through who? Through Jesus. How many of you know that Jesus is mentioned in the book of Genesis? So from Genesis to Revelation, this is all the unfolding of God's upper story. Connected to his upper story, we're all living out our day-to-day lower story. So from the timeline, if you can see there on the screen, like I say, I gave this out last week. We made it through creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel. And today the story continues as we move into the second movement, and we go into the story of Father Abraham. Did you all know he had many sons? And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. Never mind. So... Let's read the second movement. Now, let me, as I mentioned last week, last week we covered one full movement of the Bible. This week we're not going to cover a full movement. It's going to be weeks and weeks to to cover this one. But let's see what it's all about. Let's read together. God builds a brand new nation called what? Israel. Through this nation, he will reveal his presence, his power, and his plan to get us back. Every story of Israel. How many stories? Which ones? Every. Every story of Israel will point to the first coming of Jesus, the one who will provide a way back to God. So today, we're going to talk about Abraham. And Abraham is called the father of our faith, right? Which he is. He is the father of our faith. But Abraham was also a great man of faith. And for a long period of time, it seemed like things had kind of stalled out for Abraham, right? How many of you read the story of Abraham this week? Okay, good group. It seemed for a long time that Abraham's story kind of stalled out. But how many of you know that God had a plan? How many of you ever been at that place where something stalled out? I was thinking about stalling out. My son this year, there he is back there, working the computer. My son is 16 years old, turned 16 in December. What is the one thing you think about when you turn 16 years old? Driving. Our son loves to drive. He's already broke down once. It's all, he's learning all kinds of things. Learning to drive a stick shift. He says he's got it down. He hasn't learned to take off without revving the engine. <laughs> he's getting it. He's getting it. It takes time, doesn't it, to drive a standard. 
I remember when I was 16 years old, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to drive. I wanted to drive too. And so um, my parents learned quickly how to take advantage of this. My mom would say, yeah, you can drive. I need you to take my brother here, take your brother here and take him there and pick him up and drop him off. And, and so uh, I had no problem at all carting my, carting my brother around town to his, to his Boy Scouts and, and to his Boy Scout troop and everything else that he was a part of back then, the youth group and whatever else. But I remember specifically, just before I turned 17, I don't know if y'all remember this or not. I'm not talking about my parents. Um, right before I turned 17, I remember one day my mom telling me, um, uh, well, I, I need you to go do something for me. The car is almost out of gas, and i got to go somewhere in a little while. And so she gave me the keys and the Exxon card and said, go fill up the car with gas. And it was one of my grandparents' cars was driving, that old gray car. I forget what that, what that car was that, that they had. And so uh, we lived in East Memphis. Uh, right around Ridgeway and Quince. Y'all know where that is? We live right near Ridgeway and Quince. And so, um, so I'm pulling out of the neighborhood, and the closest Exxon I could think of was at Mount Moriah and Ridgeway. You picture it? So I, I pull off of, off of Quince. I take a ride on Ridgeway. I'm going south. I come under 385. I get in the left turn lane there on Mount Moriah. I'm going to take a left and a quick ride into the Exxon station, sitting in the front of the turn lane, and I stalled out. Boom. Did I mention it was rush hour? <laughs> you know what rush hour looks like at, at Ridgeway and Mount Moriah at the exit of 385? I sat there at that intersection trying to start the car, and that starter's just going. <laughs> thing would not start. I quickly realized, oh, I'm really out of gas. Really. I mean, not a drop left in the tank. Anybody ever been there? I've never done it again since. <laughs> never. I never. My wife doesn't get it. I, I tell her, you're, you're, you're getting awful low on gas there. She'll be like, I got plenty of gas. She doesn't run out either. She just makes me nervous at how far she lets it go. She has a little thing that tells her she has three miles left on this tank. I'm like, that is never accurate. That is never accurate. I'm sitting there in the intersection. And a full rotation of the light goes, green arrow, people honking, everything else. Guys, we didn't have cell phones. I couldn't call my parents to come bail, bail me out. There was no cell phones back then. Y'all young people are going, there weren't cell phones. <laughs> had nobody come bail me out, which was a good thing. So I had to get out of the car after a couple of rotations of this turn signal, this light. People honking, turn lane backed up as far as I can see under 385 and walked across the Exxon station. You know what else I didn't have? I didn't have a gas can. Like, I'm going to get a handful or something. And, <laughs> and, of course, this is one of those Exxon stations where you can't go inside. They're, like, behind the glass there, and there's a line of people. And I'm just, and I'm looking over, and there's the car stalled out and people honking and everything else. Is there, just embarrassing, just embarrassing. Finally, somebody sees my dilemma and comes over and says, is that you? Are you out of gas? I said, yeah. And he had a gas can. I was like, praise the Lord. And so I got the gas can, used that Exxon card, put some gas in there, and got to make that walk of shame back across the middle of the intersection. <laughs> I'm sitting there trying to fill it up and, and uh, get it going. Eventually did get gas in the tank. After a couple tries, it started right up. And thank God, probably six or seven rotations that light had gone by. And people trying to get around, and it was, it was awful, but finally made it. How many of you have ever stalled out before? How many of you have ever stalled out in life before? You were stuck. 
stuck in a rut, didn't know if, what was going to happen next, didn't know if you were going to make it. Nobody wants to stall out on the road, but you can certainly stall out on life. Things are going well, and then all of a sudden something takes you by surprise. Something doesn't come through the way you thought it should have or would have. Something doesn't happen in the time that you estimated that it would have happened, and you find yourself stuck. And sometimes life happens. How many of you have ever had life happen before? Man, you lost a job, a relationship falls apart, you're falsely accused, whatever it may be, and you just start praying to Jesus, and you just can't see an answer. You're going, God, where are you? What's going on? And maybe on the outside, everything looks just fine and ordinary, but on the inside, you're just stuck, and your stomach's in knots, and you don't know what to do and where to go, and all you know to do is pray and you're not seeing the answer in the time that you thought you would, in the way that you thought you would? How many of you have been there? Been there? You find yourself start asking questions. God, how can I know? How can I know that you're with me? How can I know that you've got my back? How can I know that all things work together for my good? God, how can I know? Where are you? We've all been there before. If that's you, and you've been in that place before, then the story of Abraham is for you. In the upper story, we start to see God's presence, power, and plan to get us back as he begins to build the nation of Israel. Every nation has to start with somebody. Who started the nation of Israel? Father Abraham. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, and actually I mentioned that in your service guide there's a note sheet. You can follow along on the note sheet. Also on the YouVersion Bible app on your phone or your mobile device, you can follow along on there, and the notes will also be on the screen. But um, if you are reading from the story this morning, we're going to start on page 13 or in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. This is where we're first introduced to Abraham. Actually, what was his name then? Abram. Abram. In verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse I will, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and lot with him. Abram was 70 years old when he set out from Haran. So we meet Abram. He is living in a city called Haran with his father's family. And Haran is a city, or I'm sorry, it was a city. Um, that they believe was close to the border of modern-day Syria and Turkey. Before that, Abram lived in the city of Ur, and Ur is, uh, was in what is modern-day Iraq today. So Abram and, his, and his, uh, Abram and his wife Sarai have no children. Um, they're 70, he's 75 years old, she's 65 years old, and, um, and, but they're living with their family. So there's probably plenty of family around because we know that um, Abram had siblings. So suddenly... God calls Abram to leave his family, to leave his father's household, and he says, I'm going to take you somewhere. Don't you love when God says he's going to take you somewhere? He doesn't tell him where. He just says, the land that I will show you. He says, I'm going to take you somewhere. He says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and I'm going to bless all the earth through you. And I love Abram's response. It says, so Abram went as the Lord told him. Guys, that can preach in and of itself. God tells him to do something that doesn't really make any sense, doesn't tell him where he's going or what he's going to do. And it says, Abram went as the Lord told him. So Abram and his wife Sarai 
are going to give birth and populate a nation. Did we catch the kicker in this? He's 75 years old. Now, I heard somebody the other day say, well, they lived a little longer back then. Yes, they did. But we can tell, but just a little, I think Abram lived to, was it 180, something like that? Um, But it tells us that they were well beyond childbearing years. So it sounds like probably childbearing years were about the same as we know them today. So he's 75 years old and God's saying, I'm going to birth a nation through you and bless all the earth through you. Guys, this is one of the themes we're going to see throughout the Bible. If you look in your note sheet, I'm going to give you number one. That brings us to number one. God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Anybody here that can say, thank you, Jesus. How many of you in here would say that you recognize that you were one of the most unlikely that God would choose? Come on. I raise my hand in it. I am thankful that God chooses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. And this is the case with Abram. So not only are he and his wife Sarai getting up there in age, but Sarai has never given birth. She's barren. Abram's father was an idol maker. Wouldn't God choose somebody else to birth a nation than a barren son of an idol maker? Plus, he's 75 years old. Now, no offense, don't anybody 75 years old or throw any stones at me. But God sends him to the land of Canaan. Guys, look at a map from the city of Haran to Canaan. That was a long journey across the desert. Anybody here 75 years and above want to make a walking journey across the desert? He doesn't even know where he's going. And he's going to populate a nation. But guys, Abram is who God chooses. What does Abram have that God is going to use to move his upper story forward? I found it. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. What does Abram have that God is going to use to move the upper story? Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, what did he do? Obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Guys, that is faith. That is faith. There it is. Abraham, he had faith and he obeyed. So does that mean that all his troubles went away and he immediately saw God's promises in his life? (laughs) Not remotely. Not remotely. Let's talk about what happened in the life of Abraham for just a few minutes. As the first matter of business for the father of many nations, the first thing that you would have done is gotten busy having a child, right? (laughs) If you're going to be the father of many nations, you better have at least one. Of course, Sarai was barren. She's 65 years old when this promise is made. And we know that they're trying to have a baby, but she just can't seem to get pregnant. They finally arrive in the land of Canaan, And God says, I'm going to give this land to you and to your inheritance. Again, no baby, right? After a while, they find that the land cannot support Abram and his family and Lot and his family. So they separate and go opposite directions. They go separate directions, right? And then Abram finds himself living uh, with Sarah again in the promised land. And the Bible says, like a stranger in a foreign country. So he's been promised this, this land, that it would be given to him and his ancestors, or I'm sorry, to his children and so on. 
but he's living there like a stranger in a foreign country. And then God speaks to Abram and says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. No baby. We know that um, Lot makes some bad decisions, doesn't he? And he ends up in some trouble. Lot makes his way as he separates from Abram and goes off a different direction. He decides to settle near the city of Sodom. Ended up being a bad decision. Sodom was a wicked city. And we know that um, uh, another king comes in and there's a big battle near the, in Sodom in that area. And we know that Lot and his family are captured by looters. They take Lot and his family and everything that they have. So Abram catches wind of this, and the Bible says that he rounds up 318 men, and he takes off after, after him, and he rescues Lot in a surprise night attack. How awesome. What an awesome uncle to have. Man. And it says that Abram recovers all the spoils of the looters. On his way back, we know that he meets a priest and a king named Melchizedek, and he brings the first recorded tithe to the Lord, and he gives him a tenth of all the spoils. Abram and Sarai, they go back to trying to have a baby. No luck. God speaks to Abram again and says, count the stars of the sky. That's how numerous your descendants will be. Guys, years and years and years are ticking by. We know that famine hits the land. And Abram can't stay there anymore. So he packs up Sarai and, and all their belongings and they take off to another foreign area where they live for a while. Some things happen there. They finally make their way back to the land of Canaan again. Still no baby. Sarah decides that God needs some help. Anybody ever tried to help out God before? Rarely does that end well. She decides that, it, that God needs some help. So she tells Abram that he should uh, sleep with her servant Hagar to conceive a child for them. And let me mention... Not to say this is right, but it was, this was a common occurrence during that time. If a woman was barren, um, the servant would bear her children. And so Sarai has, comes up with this idea, and we can mention here that we don't see anywhere that God mentioned that the child was necessarily going to come through Sarai. It was going to come through Abram. And so they came up with these excuses in their minds, and so they decide to help God out. And we know that um, for whatever reason, Abram doesn't object, and Hagar gives birth to who? Ishmael. Ishmael goes on to become the father of a mighty nation. Ishmael became the father of the Arab nation. And through that, we know the birth of Islam. But this is not who God had chosen to build his nation. God said, nope, he's not the one. This isn't my plan. To make matters worse, God then changes their names. Anybody know what Abram meant? Abram meant exalted father. So this is already Abram's name. Guy who can't have kids. His name is Exalted Father, right? So God says, you know what? Let's change that. We're going to call you Abraham from now on. Which means what? Father of many. It means father of many. Wouldn't you love to be 90 years old? He was 90 years old or so when God said this. And God says, you know what? We're going to change your name. I mean, already in that day and time, it brought shame on you if you couldn't have children. So God decides to change his name and up the ante and call him father of many nations. Sarai's name, too, was changed to Sarah, which means princess. And he tells them that they would birth kings and queens through their lineage. And so, guys, this is all pointing. Obviously, Abram could see it. 
that God was up to something more than what they could see with their natural eyes, right? There was something going on in the upper story that could not yet be seen in the lower story. So they leave their home. They've left their home. They've left their family. They've lived like strangers in a foreign land. They've struggled to get enough to survive. They separated from Lot, the only family they had in the area. They experienced famine. They experienced armed conflict. And I imagine the hardest thing to experience was probably when they experienced nothing at all. Nothing. When they sat there hearing and knowing the promises of God and seeing nothing happen, nothing move forward. God had promised them a child 24 years earlier, and nothing had happened. Any of you ever been there before? Maybe you know how they felt. Maybe you're still waiting on an answer to a prayer in your life. Maybe you're still waiting to see God's promises fulfilled in your life, whatever it may be. Many times, though, the thing is, we today, we struggle to wait 24 days, much less 24 years. Isn't it true? But remember, by this time, Abram is 99 years old. And after 24 years, God tells them, after, 90, after 24 years, God comes and he says, you're going to have a child in one year. At least it wasn't an open-ended amount of time anymore, right? You're going to have a child in one year. What does the Bible say Sarah did? She, she laughed. God says, why did she just laugh? She says, I didn't laugh. He says, you did laugh. I'm glad that's all God did. <laughs> didn't make her mute or something. So by this time, Abram is 99 years old and Sarah is almost 90, which brings us to number two in your notes. We have to trust God regardless of the circumstances. We learn from Abram that you have to trust God regardless of the circumstances. Guys, regardless of what your eyes see, regardless of what your ears hear, regardless of how things look, we have got to trust God and take him at his word. You think Abram's faith ever wavered? My immediate response would be yes. I, if it was me in that place, I would have been, I'd have been asking God some serious questions. But let's read something together. And this is in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith. Get that, guys. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not what? says he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was what? Strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Guys, Romans says he did not waver. 25 years after God made the promise, Abraham's faith had not wavered. Scripture tells us that not only had his faith not wavered, his faith was strengthened in the Lord. 25 years later. So what, you think Abraham was a super Christian or something? Now, of course, there weren't Christians back then. I guess you could say Abraham was the first Jew, right? Maybe he grew up in the perfect home. No, he grew up in some foreign land where they worshipped these false gods. His dad was an idol maker. No, they didn't have it all together. 
Maybe he had a great circle of friends. I don't know. They were moving an awful lot. Plus, in that day and age, again, it brought you were shamed. You could be shunned if you were barren and couldn't have children. Guys, Abraham was a normal human being like you and I. He chose to stand firm. But I imagine after 25 years in Abraham's position, we would be asking that question that I started off with. God, how can I know? How can I know that you're working on my behalf? How can I know that you're weaving my lower story and the upper story? God, help me. Brings us to number three in your notes. Number three. Guys, God always keeps his promises and his love never fails. Abraham learned this. God always keeps his promises and his love never fails. Guys, God proves his commitment to Abraham. He proves his commitment to mankind. And let's look at it together. I'm going to to show you something that I hadn't seen before. If you look in Genesis chapter 15, and in Genesis chapter 15, basically, uh, we're backing up about 10 years, okay? So this is 15 years after God has given Abraham this promise. 15 years have gone by. And it was still 10 years before the promise would be fulfilled. And so this is the period where it was, it was after this 15 years that God takes Abraham outside and says, look up, count the stars of the sky. And that's how numerous your descendants will be. But he doesn't stop there. So if you look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the city of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what does he say? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abraham says, God, how can I know? Fifteen years after the promise from God that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Fifteen years after he had been promised that he was going to be given this land as an inheritance to his descendants. Nothing. And though it says he doesn't waver, we know that Abraham stops and he says, God, how can I know? How can I know? How many of you would be in that same position? You'd say, Lord, give me, give me a little bit of help here. I need you to show up on my behalf. I need to know what's going on. Am I in the right place? Am I at the right time? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? These are all the questions I would be asking. Abraham, full of, full of faith, comes and he brings this question to the only person who can answer the question. Guys, this is when it gets really cool. Next verse, verse 9. Now look, Abraham's last question was, God, how can I know? Sovereign God, how can I know that what you've said will happen? Here's God's response. It's verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. How many of you would say, what? God, how can I know? Well, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, and two birds. says, Abram brought, all, Abraham, Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, the, the heifer, the goat, the ram, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Do you guys recognize here that God didn't tell him to cut them in two? He didn't, t- he didn't tell them what to do? You know why? Abraham knew exactly what God was doing when he called for the heifer, the goat, the ram, and the birds. He knew exactly, in ancient times, they would have known exactly what this meant. And so when God calls for the heifer, the goat, the ram, the two birds, Abraham quickly obeys. Because why? He knows God is about to cut a blood covenant. 
And so he goes and he gets these animals and he cuts them in half and he separates the halves on two sides and makes kind of an aisle down the middle between them, puts a bird on each side, gets all this arranged. He's about to make a blood covenant, which is the strongest binding contract there can ever be. Some of you may be familiar with the theologian Tim Keller. He talks about blood covenant. And he points out that from history and archaeology, we know that this type of covenant many times was used between a king and another king. They would make a blood covenant. Sometimes it was a king and a conquered king. Um, sometimes, it was, uh, sometimes it was even with a servant that the covenant would be made. They would slaughter the animals and they would cut them in half so they could make a vow and walk between them. And what they would be saying when they did this was, they would be saying, may what has happened to these animals, may it be on me if I break this vow. Is that not pretty heavy? May what has happened to these animals, may this curse, may this be on me if I break the vows that I'm making right now. It's a powerful binding promise. I had the idea, I thought, you know what, I think we ought to start doing this at weddings. We'll just forget the flower girl. Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, and two birds. We're going to make a covenant. You may not want to wear white. How many of you know it might bring a little weight to the vows that are being made? Because you're saying, may it be on me if I don't follow through on my vows. Um, generally, both the king and the other party, whoever's making the covenant, they would walk through uh, they would walk through between the animals, but many times it would just be the other party. So maybe the conquered king would make a covenant with the other king, um, and the king who did the conquering wouldn't walk through, just the, just the conquered king would. So sometimes only one party would actually walk through between the animals, um, and they would be making a vow to the person. But the Bible says that Abram does this, he cuts them, does this whole deal, and it says he falls into a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness comes over him. And then look in verse 17, down a few verses, verse 17. A little period of time goes by. It says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Guys, this represents God. We see him appearing as a cloud and by fire. Cloud by day, fire by night, right? So it, it's God. God appears and he passes between the pieces of the animals. And it says in verse 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. A wadi is just a, um, wadi is really a valley, or it could be a dry riverbed, usually in a desert. Okay, So I'm going to give you this land. So God is saying, if I don't keep this covenant, if I don't keep this promise, if I don't follow through and do what I said that I would do, may this curse be on me. How many of you know that would give you a little bit of faith in God in that moment? Recognize who does not walk between the pieces. Abram. Abram does not walk between the pieces. The covenant is strictly from God's side. So what this means is God is saying, God's saying, if I fail, may it be unto me. He's saying, Abram, if you fail, if, the, if your descendants, if the nation of Israel fails, may it also be unto me. You guys getting where we're going here? He's saying, if I fail or if you fail, 
may my body be broken, may my blood be poured out. When Abram said, how can I know? Because God swore it and he followed through on that vow. We see all the way into the New Testament. God wasn't done testing Abram's faith, Abraham's faith. He would tell him to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? Abraham would obey, but we know that God rescues Isaac. Anybody know what mountain that was on? It was on Mount Moriah. You know what's on Mount Moriah today? The city of Jerusalem. 2,000 years later on that same mountain, God would sacrifice his only son. And this time there would be no rescue. His body would be broken and his blood would be poured out. I was talking to my dad a couple days ago and talking about how really the covenant was between God the Father and Jesus. And Jesus, who was the one who took the punishment for man. So God would honor the covenant that he made with Abram, Abraham through his son through Jesus. He would cut a new covenant with us, and like Abraham, we receive this new covenant by faith. If we want faith like Abraham, then we've got to do like Abraham did. We've got to stand. We've got to trust. We've got to obey. And you know what? It's okay sometimes to say, stop and say, God, how can I know? And he'll show us. God answered by placing his very deity on the line and gave Abraham a place that he could that he could place his hope and his faith. And the best news of all is that we can too. Quick wrap-up of chapter 2 of the story. At 100 years old, we know that Abraham finally has his promised son Isaac. Slow start to the uh, birth of a nation. But uh, years later, we know that Isaac would marry Rebekah. She would give birth to a son named Jacob. Again, Jacob was one of those least likely to be selected guys. What does his name mean? It meant deceiver. Deceiver, one of those least qualified, but you know what? He's who God chose and who God would work through. Jacob will go on to marry Rachel. God would change, change Jacob's name to what? Israel. Jacob would have 12 sons who would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of the tribe of Judah would come the promised Messiah, the lamb who would be broken, whose blood would be poured out so that we could be free. Takeaways as I conclude, I gave you three things. Number one. God uses the most likely people to accomplish his purpose. Lord, have mercy. Huh? God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purpose. Guys, you may feel underqualified to do anything for God. But guess what? He chooses you. Guys, he chose me. I, I, I cannot, I, I've said it before. Guys, it wasn't real long ago. I guess it was a while ago now. but It wasn't too long ago that I couldn't stand up and speak in front of a small group. I considered myself to be the most unlikely to be chosen by God. I remember my senior, I remember my senior year in high school giving a, having to give an oral report on Julius Caesar. Lord have mercy. Oh. Trying not to vomit as I stood in front of a crowd. How many of you have been there before? So why in the world would God choose me to step up these steps and do this? Because you know what? I don't do anything in my own strength. I step out in God's strength. Secondly, I mentioned we got to trust God regardless of the circumstances. Guys, regardless of what we see, 
as we surrender our life to him, God is in control. He's got your situation. That mountain that you're facing, it's nothing to him. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you hear. He is weaving your lower story and his upper story as you surrender your life to him. He works in his timing. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it's 25 days. Sometimes it's 25 years. But God, God's, guys, God's timing is always perfect. Always perfect. So don't trust what you see. Trust him regardless of the circumstances. Stick with him and trust him to fulfill his word in your life. And lastly, the third thing I mentioned was God always keeps his promises and his love never fails. He has proved it over and over and over again. He proved it to Abraham. He proved it through Jesus. And you know what? He even proves it in your life. How many of you can say that you've seen God's love and his promises in your life? You've seen it. Doesn't mean that everything's perfect. Doesn't mean everything always goes the way you think it should. Doesn't mean everything happens in the time you think it will. But God is faithful, and he always keeps his promises. He will never fail you. His love never fails. He loves you, and he looks at you today, and he says, I choose you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up on our feet. Let me get the worship team to come up. We're just a few minutes over, but I I ask you guys, just stick with us for for just a second. Let's all stand up on our feet. Worship team's going to start to play. Let's all bow our heads together. Wowzers. Let's. (laughs) And if you're. (laughs) Some of you kept your eyes open and you thought you closed them. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Guys. For God's promises to apply to your life, you've got to surrender your life to that perfect lamb. You've got to surrender your life to Jesus. He gave his life so that you could live. He gave his life to bring you into right standing with him. He gave his life as an atonement for your sin and your shame and your guilt and all the things that you hold on to. Guys, you don't have to walk this life alone. The creator of the universe wants so desperately for you to grab his hand. He wants to walk with you. He wants to walk you through this life. He wants to be your encouragement and tell you that it's all going to be all right. He wants to do the heavy lifting in your life. We try so hard to do things in our own strength and our own time. We don't have to do it alone. We serve a mighty God, a mighty God that has never failed. And you are the apple of his eye. You are his treasured possession. He loves you so much. He's not going to let go. So lay your burdens down and trust him to carry those for you. But first and foremost, I would ask you, is your life surrendered to Jesus? Is your life surrendered? If you're in this place today and you've never said, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life, and this is your moment, or maybe you have before, Maybe you have surrendered your life to Jesus before, but you recognize that lately he's kind of been the last thing on your mind and you haven't been giving him much much thought lately. He's certainly not first. Then I encourage you to rededicate your life today and say, Jesus, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to allow you to lead and guide me. And I'm going to trust you that regardless of what my eyes see, regardless of what I hear, regardless of what I encounter in this life, I'm going to trust that you've got this. 
and I'm going to choose to walk with you. Anybody in this place with every head bowed that would say, I need to get my life right with the Lord today. Every head bowed. I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out. If you would lift your hand and let me see. Who would say, I need to get my life right with Jesus today? Anybody in this place? All right. Praise the Lord. Two. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. We're going to pray a prayer together. I'm going to ask everybody to pray along here in just a moment. And the Bible says that if you mean this prayer with all your heart, that you become a new creation, that the old has passed away and all things become new. You're translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You're grafted into the family of God. And you can be assured that when you take your final breath and you open your eyes, you're going to see the smiling face of Jesus. He's going to say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I have not lived my life for you. I've been living my life for myself, and I desperately need to change. I need you in my life. I want you in my life. Today, Jesus, I say that you are the Son of the living God. You are my sacrifice. You're my perfect Lamb. You laid down your life for me. And I ask you to come into my life now and to take up residence in my heart. Be my King, be my Lord, be my Savior. I'll follow you to the end. I put my own desires, my own thoughts, my own dreams on hold. And I say, Lord, have your way in my life from this day forward. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything you've called me to be. I'll follow you to the end, never looking back. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.